flesh, bone, and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books around you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. So we're going to We got a letter from Strix. No, no, no. Why are you bringing this up? I told you we weren't talking about it. It's just some fan trying to get my attention. The letter was addressed to me. Well, talking about it just encourages that sort of thing. You said you like to get messages from listeners. Emails, not postal mail. You know that. We don't give out our address for a reason. This is just someone trying to show off what a great detective they are finding our address and sending some nonsense. Anyway... It was addressed to me. You've not had a problem before when I thank listeners on air for notes they've sent me. Uh, Those were emails or messaging apps. What about the painting? Remember a few years ago, a listener mailed a painting of us. You even thanked them on air. I I talked to that listener. It wasn't said anonymously. Much less in the persona of a dead owl. Dead? No, not necessarily. I don't know. Is that what you think? No. I don't know. My mind just goes to the worst case scenarios. She might be fine. She says she's doing well. She's found a place in the woods with lots of mice. You would know that if you let me show you the letter. I'm sure listeners would be interested to know what happened with her. Maybe it's not a real letter. They can take it with a grain of salt. It's up to them. But I thought this show was all about looking into mysteries, supernatural things, myths and legends, you know. I just thought that this would be something worth mentioning. It's just sad. It doesn't have to be. An owl writing a letter. Was it typed or did she hold a pen? You just want to make this sound as ridiculous as possible. She didn't have to do either of those. She could have dictated it. She said nice things about you. Just just sad. Anyway, this, this is episode 126, Glass Coffin Girls. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas, and will have a related volume out at the start of next year. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors, who Choose from a tantalizing array of monthly rewards, including shirts, mugs, dusty old things from the library shelves here, and access to monthly bonus episodes. And I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Beatus, I have cared for her tenderly and well. You will find her almost as beautiful as when you last saw her. She died two years after the war. This is a scene from 1934's The Black Cat, in which you hear Boris Karloff reveling in the beauty of Bela Lugosi's dead wife, who is exhibited under glass. 
Necrophilia-tinged scenes of dead beauties lovingly displayed as the stuff of horror films. Something another character played by Karloff ten years later in The Climax also took pleasure in. And something also often found in adaptations of the fairy tale Bluebeard. But while it's expected that audiences of these stories would be repelled by all this, it's not so with the fairy tale Snow White. Well, of course, we know she's really only sleeping, so perhaps it's not as bad as all that. But the tale as originally told isn't quite the one we think we know. It's uh, honestly a bit ghastly. Now, a bit about the stories collected by Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm. The compilation we call Grimm's Fairy Tales, first published in 1812 and expanded and updated over the years, was actually published as Kinder und Hausmärchen, literally children's and household tales, so uh, stories for kids and the household or the whole family. That uh, children would be a target audience was something relatively new at the time, and the extremely simple language and the brevity of the texts reflects the interest in holding kids' attention. Earlier collections of similar stories featuring magic folktale elements, books from which you'll be hearing later, were written strictly for adults. But not the Grimm stories. They were intended to be read to children. Which makes the whole Glass Coffin episode even more disturbing. Es war einmal mitten im Winter. Es war einmal, there once upon a time, and immediately from there we hear how Snow White gets her name, a beautiful queen sewing at her window, picks her finger, and has that thought. If only I had a child as white as snow, as red as blood, and as black as this frame. Now, that queen in the original 1812 version is Snow White's own mother. And it's she, not a stepmother, who plays the role of the vain and wicked mirror-gazer. By 1819, the Grimms, however, had the biological mother dying off earlier in the story to make room for a wicked stepmother, probably to make the story a bit more palatable. In both versions and all subsequent Grimm publications, however, it should be noted that the young Snow White, who stirs the jealousy of the Wicked Queen and ends up married to the prince, is not a character maturing into womanhood, but is only seven years old when all this happens. The actual name of the character is occasionally more correctly translated as Little Snow White, as the uh, North German use Schneewittchen uh, includes that hin part, a diminutive ending which suggests something small or precious, like a child. Then we have the huntsman ordered to take the girl to the woods and slay her. But it's even less child-friendly than that. You probably remember the queen in the 1937 film ordering him to return with Snow White's heart as proof of the deed. Terrible enough, but uh, not quite the words the Grimms have her speak. As proof that she is dead, bring her lungs and her liver back to me. I shall cook them with salt and eat them. So there's no gruesome reference to cutting out hearts at all, actually. To simulate Snow White's organs, the huntsman kills a boar and removes what he needs to give to the queen, who... Cooked them with salt and ate them. Sounds kind of bland, but I guess the secret seasoning is spite. Now, um, I'm aware that many of you will know some of these gory details, as articles with titles like Dark Origins of Beloved Fairy Tales are not exactly a novelty on the internet these days, but these exposés tend to miss more subtle things. The Huntsman, for instance, who's usually portrayed as a sympathetic character, is not exactly that for the Grimm's. Though he's relieved not to have to execute Snow White, he consoles himself with the thought, 
The wild animals will devour her anyway. Of course, Snow White then finds her way to the cottage of the seven dwarves, uh, unnamed dwarves in this version, by the way, and the queen's mirror reveals that the girl has survived and still trumps her mother in beauty. The queen promptly disguises herself as an old peddler woman selling bodice laces, which the girl is eager to try on. But she has some trouble lacing herself up, so the queen says, Come here. I'll do it better. Snow White stood before her, and she took hold of the laces, and she pulled them so tight that Snow White could not breathe, and she fell down as if she were dead. <laughs> Returning home, however, the dwarves managed to unlace her in time and warn her about not answering the door when they're away at the mine, which she foolishly ignores, answering the door when the queen appears again in her paddler guise, this time offering combs, in particular a poisoned comb, which upon contact with the girl's hair sends her into another death-like state. But this again is removed by the uh, life-saving dwarves. After the dwarves offer another stranger danger warning, Snow White is a little more hesitant when the queen comes selling apples, uh, having ingeniously only poisoned half of each apple so that she can overcome the girl's suspicion by taking a bite. When uh, Snow White takes one, takes a bite, she does again immediately fall to the ground as if dead, and then... That evening, the dwarves returned home from the mines. Snow White was lying on the floor and she was dead. They loosened her laces and looked in her hair for something poisonous, but nothing helped. They could not bring her back to life. They laid her on a bier, and all seven sat next to her and cried and cried for three days. They were going to bury her, but they saw that she remained fresh. She did not look at all like a dead person, and she still had beautiful red cheeks. They had a glass coffin made for her and laid her inside so that she could be seen easily. They wrote her name and her ancestry on it in gold letters, and one of them always stayed at home and kept watch over her. Now, by 1857, perhaps the Grimms had realized there was something fairly creepy about displaying the body of a dead child in a glass coffin in one's own home for protracted periods. So they described the coffin being moved to a hilltop where a single dwarf holds vigil, but uh, not so in 1812 or in the several intervening editions. The story continues... Snow White lay there in the coffin a long, long time, and she did not decay. She was still as white as snow and as red as blood, and if she had been able to open her eyes, they would still have been as black as ebony wood. She lay there as if she were asleep. Now, keep in mind, this prince has never before encountered or heard of her, and there's certainly no wishing well duet. He's just looking for accommodations, and... One day, a young prince came to the dwarf's house and wanted shelter for the night. When he came into their parlor and saw Snow White lying there in a glass coffin, illuminated so beautifully by seven little candles, he could not get enough of her beauty. He read the golden inscription and saw that she was the daughter of a king. And this is where his fascination with the dead girl gets really weird. He asked the dwarves to sell him the coffin with the dead Snow White, but they would not do this for any amount of gold. Then he asked them to give her to him, for he could not live without being able to see her, and he would keep her and honor her as his most cherished thing on earth. Then the dwarves took pity on him and gave him the coffin. The prince had it carried into his castle and had it placed in a room where he sat by it the whole day, 
never taking his eyes from it. Whenever he had to go out and wasn't able to see Snow White, he became sad, and he could not eat a bite unless the coffin was standing next to him. Now, the servants who always had to carry the coffin to and fro became angry about this. One time, one of them opened the coffin, lifted Snow White upright and said, We are plagued the whole day long just because of such a dead girl. And he hit her in the back with his hand. Then the terrible piece of apple that she had bitten off came out of her throat and Snow White came back to life. So there is no kiss. In fact, it's just a matter of disgruntled servants abusing a corpse or what's believed to be a corpse. By 1819, the Grimms had softened this element a bit, instead having the servant stumble while transporting the coffin, and this jostling the body and dislodging the apple. Now, another thing, we don't know exactly how long a period the Grimms are indicating when they say Snow White lay in her coffin. A long, long time. Is this the prince fascinated by the corpse of a seven-year-old? Has it been a year? Is she eight, or can we assume, a period of suspended animation, including the roughly five years it would take for her to reach puberty, or the 11 years you would need to bring her to the modern age of legal marriage. But some questions are best not asked. And it's only a day later they do get married, and Snow White becomes a young queen. Still believing her rival to be dead, the wicked queen is horrified then to hear the mere declare... You, my queen, are fair, it is true. But the young queen is a thousand times more fair than you. Not knowing the identity of the young woman slated to be married to the prince, she shows up at the wedding to satisfy her jealous curiosity, and... When she arrived, she saw that it was Snow White. They put a pair of iron shoes into the fire until they glowed and she had to put them on and dance in them. Her feet were terribly burned, and she could not stop until she had danced herself to death. Fair enough. People enjoy dancing. So that's the story. I've taken some time to go through it all, as we'll see some of these elements showing up in earlier tales, which may have contributed to the story's Narrative DNA. In their appended notes to the story, the Grimms mentioned being aware of at least eight other versions of Snow White circulating through Germany at the time. While most of these had not been committed to print, one tale in the form of a children's play had been published just three years earlier in 1809 by another author, oddly, also named Grimm. Apparently unrelated to Jakob and Wilhelm, Albert Ludwig Grimm, or A.L. Grimm as he was known, was an author, politician, and educator who between 1808 and 1870 had published nine collections of folk tales. His uh, theatrical adaptation of Snow White appeared in a collection published simply under the title Kindermärchen, or Children's Fairy Tales or Stories. A.L. Grimm's version of Snow White shared not only the uh, namesake heroine, Schneewittchen, in its same North German dialectical form, but also features dwarves who aid Snow White, a magic mirror addressed in rhyme, poisoned fruit, uh, deception involving the heroine's purported death, and glass coffins. Still, it's um, not really the same story, and Jakob or Wilhelm, in their notes which accompanied these stories tersely dismiss the tale as dissimilar and not exactly well done. While the folk tale of the Brothers Grimm is rather short and bare bones, A.L. Grimm's story feels like a modern film jammed with a lot of plot elaborations and gimmicks designed to uh, pad a short story out for a two-hour runtime. There are comic scenes begging for laughs, including one in which the wicked stepmother is forced to eat snake meat by a 
a cave-dwelling witch known as the Mother of Serpents, a character offering the requisite scary element. And her dwelling makes for quite a set piece, as the script describes. A black mountain cave with no window opening, damp and misty. A blue fire burns in the middle, on which a large cauldron stands. Strange, outdated equipment stands amongst the crevices. Another visual spectacle would be demanded by the opening scene of the play, which has Snow White flying in a golden chariot pulled by six snow-white swans. In front of the chariot, the dwarf rides on a swan. The other dwarves ride behind the chariot, also on swans. They alight on the open platform. And all this takes place on a glass mountain, abode of the dwarf king Katalum and his dwarf subjects who live amidst difficult-to-fabricate scenery, including a... Castle and fountain and trees. Everything is made of glass, but has its own natural color. I don't know if the play was ever produced. Um, The magic mirror here belongs to King Katalum and is used to communicate with Snow White, warner of dangers, and alert him when his help is needed. Snow White's nemesis here is also an evil queen, her stepmother, but along with a stepsister, Adelheida, whom the queen hopes to marry off to a prince who happens to be more interested in Snow White. Uh, To uh, aid Adelheida in this competition, the Wicked Queen seeks out the aforementioned Mother of Serpents, who provides her not with a poisoned apple, but poisoned figs. And the Mother of Serpents also flies her to the top of the Glass Mountain on her uh, oven fork, the uh, old German witch's equivalent of a broomstick. Uh, Having disguised herself as a member of the uh, Bachelor Prince's court, she offers the figs as a token of his favor— and Snow White consumes them with the effect you would expect, but thanks to the mirror, King Katalum comes to savor and mete out punishments, which is where the glass coffin comes in to uh, quite a different purpose. Uh, Here it's a prison where the Wicked Queen is to be confined. Nine and ninety times, nine and ninety years. And a jealous stepsister, Adelheida, is turned into a mirror so that every time Snow White looks at herself in it, She should envy her beauty. Now, while A.L. Grimm's story from 1809 is sort of a theatrical confection for children spun up around a character that the audiences of the day might have known through folk tales, there is an earlier version of the narrative, a 1782 novella entitled Richilde, which is clearly written for adults. Whether the novella was inspired by a folk narrative or whether it inspired folk narratives is harder to say. Richilde is by the German novelist, satirist, and literary critic Johann Karl August Museus and appeared in the first of his five-volume work, Folk Tales of the Germans, published between 1782 and 1786. Unlike the Grimm's, Museus makes no attempt to duplicate the simple language of oral storytelling, sometimes employing instead a sort of ironic tone which actually satirizes the beliefs motivating the characters. He was a writer of the Enlightenment, after all. His story also differs in making the wicked stepmother, Richilda, the title character of his novella, while the Snow White character is uh, Bianca, that is, uh, white in Italian. Though the story is not set in Italy, it's set in medieval Brabant, which today would be Belgium. The magic mirror in Museus' novella is constantly reassuring Richilda that she is indeed the fairest maid of all. And as such, she's attracted numerous suitors, but is again aided by the mirror in locating a particularly handsome candidate, Count Gombalt of Leuven, whom she pursues. The flattered Count, who happens to be married, fails to mention this, and in fact divorces his wife on the pretense that they're too closely related. He then... Shut up his good and faithful wife and her daughter in a cloister where she grieved and mourned until, at last, the angel of death 
released her from her sufferings. The Count rode to the nunnery, took the child, put it under the charge of the superintendent of one of his castles, and gave her seven court dwarves to wait upon her. The Count's deeds, however, don't exactly rest easy on his conscience, and he ends up making a penitent pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he dies. Upon turning 15, Bianca is declared by the mirror to be the fairest in the land, which results in Rechilde attempting to poison her, first with the pomegranate prepared by the court physician, then with soaps likewise prepared, and finally a letter, a poisoned letter. None of these do the job, as the doctor preparing them doesn't find it in his heart to kill the girl and secretly is only employing a sleeping drug rather than something lethal. After the initial pomegranate incidents, the dwarves prepared for her a wooden coffin with silver plates and handles, and that they might not at once be robbed of the sight of their beloved mistress, they made a glass window to it. The servants prepared a shroud of the finest brabant linen, wrapped the corpse up in it, put the maiden's crown and a wreath of fresh myrtle on her head. The coffin is deposited in the chapel of the castle, and Bianca ends up placed in it three times. After the drugged letter is opened, a handsome young knight, Gottfried of Ardennes, happens to be passing through Brabant, visits Bianca's castle, hears her story, and sees her laid out in the chapel. He decides the application of a holy relic he brought back from Rome may rouse her, which it does, in a sense, and the two, of course, instantly fall in love. Now, throughout all this, Musaeus adds an interesting touch with the magic mirror as it begins to reflect Rishilda's moral corruption of Dorian Gray style and great marks of rust. The plague spots of sin increasingly obscure its surface. Gottfried and Bianca are naturally to be married, and guests are invited to a wedding to be held for the night and an unnamed bride. Richilde is among the guests when Gottfried announces that his bride has just been murdered by her own jealous mother. He asks the guests what sort of punishment would be appropriate for such a heinous deed, and Richilda foolishly offers her suggestion involving iron shoes. Gottfried reveals to the crowd that his bride Bianca is in fact alive, and the murderous mother stands among them. She is seized, the wedding vows are said, the dwarves clamp burning shoes to Richilda's feet, and one of Gottfried's men drags her down the hall in so rapid a dance that the very floor smoked and the musicians blew so heartily that all her groans and cries of pain were drowned in the noisy music. After endless twirls and circles, the active knight turned the heated dancer out of the hall, down the staircase into a well-guarded prison where the wicked sufferer had time and leisure for repentance. Rarely mentioned, probably because it's Russian and was never published in translation, is a tale printed in 1794, so 17 years before the Grimm's Snow White. Um, It's from a collection of folk tales entitled, loosely translated, An Old Song in a New Setting, or a complete collection of ancient folk tales published for a lover of them at the expense of the Moscow merchant Ivan Ivanov. The first of the seven-volume series contains our story called Tale of the Old Mendicants, uh, that is, uh, monks who go begging for alms. Our heroine is Olga the Beautiful. Her mother has died and her father remarries, then dies himself, leaving Olga in the care of a stepmother who is both evil and vain. When their home is visited by mendicants asking for food, they flatter Olga about her beauty and refuse to likewise compliment the stepmother. 
So, uh, naturally, the stepmother drugs Olga and orders her servant to take the unconscious girl to the woods and kill her, further demanding her heart and a little finger as proof that the deed's been done. Out in the woods, Olga is awakened by the servant's tears falling upon her as he contemplates and explains to her his dreadful orders. Olga, being moved by his speech, felt his despair, and taking a knife, cut off her little finger, which she gave to the servant. He was very surprised at the generosity of the young girl. It is rather surprising. And the uh, heart is provided by a stray dog. Meanwhile, Olga finds her way to a house in the center of the forest in which a group of hunters live. Like Snow White's dwarves, they allow her to live there in exchange for housekeeping. While the hunters are kind to her, she does miss her home and somehow also her stepmother. One day, when some mendicants come begging, Olga gives them alms along with a pie she asks to be delivered to her stepmother. Surprised to learn the girl is still alive when she receives it, the stepmother decides to remedy this by giving the mendicants a parcel to deliver to Olga, a shirt decorated with pearls and laced with poison. Olga, of course, falls for the ploy, dons the shirt, and collapses in a swoon. Returning from their hunt, the hunters assume their beloved maid is dead and... Have a crystal coffin made, and in the middle of the courtyard, they erected four marble pillars on which they placed the coffin. And as soon as they touched the shirt, they themselves died. Sometime later, a prince is riding by and sees this monument, and approaching it is surprised by the pile of bodies and the beauty of the coffin's occupant. Becoming unnaturally obsessed, he then ordered the coffin to be removed from the pillars and, placing it on a cart, specially made for this purpose, brought it with him. He built in his palace a special room for the coffin, to which he went every morning and cried, regretting that the color of such beauty had faded early. The prince's mother begins to notice that her son is withdrawing into his own weird world and decides to investigate. Upon entering the room, her first thought is to steal the lovely pearl-studded shirt, since no one's really using it. When she removes it, Olga suddenly awakes, asking how long she's slept. And then upon his return, the prince finds the coffin empty, flying into a tearful fit at the loss, and this followed by a rapturous ecstasy when he sees Olga on her feet. The poison shirt is burned, arrangements are made for Olga and the prince to marry, and the rest is the happily ever after. Whether the Russian story made its way through Poland to Germany to become part of the folktale tradition there and ultimately influenced the Grimm's version is unknown, but an even earlier story, sharing elements with Snow White, was definitely familiar to Jakob and Wilhelm as is part of the very first book of fairy tales collected in 1634 by the Neapolitan writer Giambattista Basile and published as Il Pentamarone, or The Tale of Tales. The book, which I mentioned before, contains early Italian versions of several well-known tales, including Cinderella, Rapunzel, Sleeping Beauty, and Hansel and Gretel. Though our story, The Little Slave, is probably closest to Snow White, you'll also notice it sharing themes with uh, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella. The tale begins with the bizarre conception of the Snow White character, here named Lisa, via a rosebush, because it's a strange story. It happens when a group of young women make a game of jumping over this rosebush. None of the players quite clear it, but Lilla, the mother-to-be, leaps over, knocking only a single leaf from the bush... But she was so quick and ready that she picked it up from the ground without anyone noticing and swallowed it, thereby winning the prize. Not less than three days later, Lilla felt herself 
to be pregnant. A helpful fairy assures Lilla that she is indeed pregnant, and this was caused by the swallowing of the leaf. When the child is born, Lilla's fairy friends are in attendance to bestow blessings on the newborn, as in Sleeping Beauty. One, however, is late and, in her haste to arrive, slipped and twisted her foot so badly that in her acute pain she hurled a curse at her to the effect that when she was seven years old, her mother, whilst combing out her hair, would leave the comb in her tresses stuck into the head, and from this the child would perish. Well, all of this does come to pass, and... The despairing mother, lamenting bitterly, encased the body in seven caskets of crystal, one within the other, and placed her in a distant room of the palace, keeping the key in her pocket. Years pass, and before her death, Lilla passes the key to her brother, who is a baron. One day, when he's out hunting, his wife, the baroness, succumbs to her curiosity and unlocks the room, and... She saw the young girl clearly visible through the crystal caskets. So she opened them one by one and found that she seemed to be asleep. Lisa had grown like any other woman, and the caskets had lengthened with her, keeping pace as she grew. Her first reaction is jealousy, assuming her husband is keeping the body to gaze upon lustfully. So she seized the girl by the hair, dragged her out, and in doing so caused the comb to drop out, so that the sleeping Lisa awoke. As further punishment upon the object of her jealousy, and to make the girl a bit more unrecognizable, she straightway cut off the girl's hair and thrashed her with the tresses, dressed her in rags, and every day heaped blows on her head and bruises on her face. The Baroness claims the newly arrived slave was sent to them by a relative. Lisa endures her predicament until one day the Baron plans to go to a fair and... Asked everyone in the house, including even the cats, what they would like him to buy for them. The Baroness is infuriated that her slave should be included, screaming... Don't pay so much attention to a worthless bitch! Let her go to the devil! Ignoring his shrewish wife, he takes Lisa's request, which consists of a doll, a pumice stone or whetstone, and a knife. When he returns and they are provided to her, she went into the kitchen and, putting the doll in front of her, began to weep and lament and recount all the story of her troubles to that bundle of cloth, just as if it had been a real person. When it did not reply, she took the knife and sharpened it on the pumice stone and said, Mind, if you don't answer me, I will dig this into you, and that will put an end to the game. And the doll, swelling up like a reed when it had been blown into, answered at last, All right, I have understood you. I'm not deaf. As she continues to recount her misfortunes, the Baron happens to overhear recognizing in the details the story of his own niece. At the end of her tale, the rather emotionally damaged girl then declares, Answer me, Dolly, or I'll kill myself with this knife. And sharpening it on the pumice stone, she would have plunged it into herself had not the Baron kicked down the door and snatched the knife out of her hand. Her uncle sends her away to recuperate in the home of a relative. Upon her return, he holds a banquet at the end of which she asks Lisa to once again recount her hardships. And of the cruelty of his wife, a tale which made all the guests weep. He then drove his wife away, sending her back to her parents, and gave his niece a handsome husband of her own choice. Now, our very earliest story, paralleling in some ways, that of Snow White, is quite a bit older. It's from the 12th century. It's by Marie de France, who we've heard from before also. Uh, her poetic works, composed in Anglo-Norman, 
represent a particular form of poetry known as a lay, and the story in question is the lay of Elie Duke. Elie Duke is a knight-errant who comes from Brittany to serve a king in Britain. He's greatly favored by the ruler and falls in love with his daughter, Guillaume. Unfortunately, he already has a wife in Brittany. After some lengthy passages detailing their courtship and his struggles with conscience, he returns to Britain, deciding to bring with him his lover. When a storm endangers their ship during the passage home, one of his men blames the misfortune on the knight's adultery and the presence of his lover. This is the first Guillaume has heard of a wife, and she falls into a swoon. Her face became pale and discolored. She neither breathed nor sighed, nor could any bring her any comfort. Those who carried her to a sheltered place were persuaded that she was but dead. Eliduc manages to guide the ship to port and, recalling an old hermit's chapel, in a certain great forest, both long and deep, he brings the body there, only to find it vacant as the hermit has recently died. He has his men bring their mantles and make a bed upon the altar place. Thereon they laid the maiden. He kisses her farewell and joylessly returns to his wife, Guldeyek. The next day, however, he sneaks off to visit the body and... Found her as he had parted, for she had not come back from her swoon. He marveled greatly, for he saw her red and white as he had known her in life. She had lost none of her sweet color, save that she was a little blanched. These secret visits become habit, and his suspicious wife eventually has him followed. The servant returns with news that he is visiting the hermit's chapel, but he's not followed him inside. Intending to discover what her husband might be doing within the chapel, she goes back with the servant, and upon entering, saw the bed upon the altar place, and a maiden thereon like a new-sprung rose. Stooping down, the lady removed the mantle. She marked the rigid body, the long arms, and the frail white hands with their slender fingers folded on the breast. She calls the servant inside, exclaiming, Seest thou, she said, this woman who for beauty shineth as a gem. This lady in her life was the lover of my lord. It was for her that all his days were spoiled by grief. Then something strange happens. A weasel emerges from beneath the altar and runs across the body. The servant kills it and flings it aside, but then... The companion of this weasel presently came forth to seek him. She went forth from the chapel and hastened to the wood, from when she returned quickly, bearing a vermilion flower beneath her teeth. This red flower she placed within the mouth of that weasel the varlet had slain, and immediately he stood upon his feet. Gildiek takes the cue and does the same with her husband's lover, restoring her to life. Of course, Eliduc is delighted when he sees his living lover returning, and it all turns out to be cool with the wife because she wanted to be a nun anyway. So, uh, happily ever after again. Just watch the weasels. So, have we traced the origins of Snow White to a 12th century Breton lay? or to an 18th century Russian folktale? Well, uh, no, not really. I've shared these stories because they are interesting in themselves and offer intriguing parallels. The search for a single source for a fairy tale is kind of a fool's errand, often particularly foolish when it involves pinning it all on some historical event or figure, but that's good for tourism or selling books. There have been a couple of German towns claiming to have provided inspiration for the story of Snow White, Bad Wildungen and Lohr am Main. A 1994 book published in the latter, Snow White, Fact or Fairy Tale, 
suggests she was inspired by a 16th century countess, Margareta von Waldeck, because, among other things, her father owned a copper mine where dwarf-sized children were employed. It was enough to build a tourism push around, including the exhibition of the alleged inspiration for the magic mirror. It doesn't talk, but it does have these inscriptions. She is as beautiful However, as it all went south in 2014 when a statue of Snow White was commissioned. The results were rather alarming. It ended up being a, an amorphous, uh, widely hated sort of expressionist thing that's been compared to a Medusa. One poll shows that 90% of the town's inhabitants don't like the sculpture. I think that I've developed my own style, and I want to art should give me pleasure and not repel me. Why the town has shelled out more than 100,000 euros for it. The Brothers Grimm think of the modern sculpture. Well, at least they won't be sued by Disney. After the Grimm's published their stories... Folktale collections began appearing everywhere, and there were suddenly dozens upon dozens of Snow White variants, collected from all over Europe, from Greece to Scotland. In these stories, the evil queen's jealousy, when not sparked by the words of a magic mirror, can be whispered in her ear by a demon, as in Spain, or a demon with a spider head, as in the Netherlands. Sometimes she's an innkeeper and her jealousy is inspired by the attention paid to the daughter by guests or just by passing soldiers, as in a French version. Or her news about the fairest in the land might come from a trout in a well, as in Scotland, or a pair of magic crystal bowls, as in Denmark. Filling the role of the poison apple, comb, or bodice laces, there are Poisoned pears, grapes, candy, sugar almonds, dresses, rings, earrings, shoes, stockings, and hairpins. Sometimes the proof demanded of the huntsman is a tongue, a lock of hair, or a bottle of blood. And when not staying with dwarves, our Snow White figure quite often is taken in by robbers hiding out in the woods, or in a cave, or a castle, or taken in by giants living in a castle or in a rock, which in Spain permits access with a command, open sesame style. There's even a version from the Netherlands in which the Snow White character named Maricia, who has a pet sheep, rather likes living in a cave with 17 robbers and ends up rejecting the prince in favor of her current lifestyle. There is one final story to close our show. Uh, this one was published in an 1856 volume by the Swiss historian and folklorist Ernst Ludwig Rockholz, entitled Swiss Legends of the Argau. It uh, doesn't actually feature a Snow White character per se, but it does feature seven dwarves and answers some questions about them. It is called... The Death of the Seven Dwarves On one of the high plains between Brug and Waldshut, near the Black Forest, seven dwarves lived together in a small house. Late one evening, an attractive young peasant girl who was lost and hungry approached them and requested shelter for the night. The dwarves had only seven beds, and they fell to arguing with one another, for each one wanted to give up his bed for the girl. Finally, the oldest one took the girl into his bed. Before they could fall asleep, a peasant woman appeared before their house, knocked on the door, and asked to be let inside. The girl got up immediately and told the woman that dwarves had only seven beds and that there was no room for anyone else. With this, the woman became very angry and accused the girl of being a slut, thinking that she was cohabitating with all seven men. 
threatening to make a quick end to such evil business. She went away in a rage. That night, she returned with two men, whom she had brought up from the bank of the Rhine. They immediately broke into the house and killed the seven dwarves. They buried the bodies outside in the garden and burned the house to the ground. No one knows what became of the girl. I hope everyone's been enjoying our show, and if you do, that you would leave us a review, or even better, join us on Patreon as a supporter. Among the many reward tiers available, a monthly pledge of $2 brings you immediate access to hundreds of posts on our show's blog, in which I share curious tidbits from history, folklore, and horror films, all related generally to the subject matter. Donating a mere $4 or more monthly brings you an extra episode every month, somewhat shorter than the public shows, but still lavishly and melodramatically soundscaped. Other rewards include downloads of those show soundscapes heard under the narration, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t-shirt and mug options, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits. Pledges start at $1 a month and can be cancelled at any time. And here are some of our dearest friends who have recently signed up and to whom we are very grateful. Thank yous to Logan Moore, Vastator, Vastator? I don't know. Uh, Matt Smith, and Belinda Lind. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>